Welcome to another episode of the Underground Bunker Podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega. And recently, well, once just this weekend, uh, once a year ago, we had film reviews from my old friend, Luke Thompson, and both times the reaction from readers was really, really great. People loved his reviews. I thought we'll have him on the podcast so you all can meet the guy that writes these great film reviews for us, Luke. Welcome to the Underground Bunker Podcast. Well, Tony, it's great to be here. I uh, I apologize in advance for anyone who tuned in thinking they were going to hear an ex Scientologist or something because I'm not that. But uh... you know, I was thinking about this. You you probably know more about Scientology than I know about movies. So I think we'll be fine because I, you know we met. Let's let's do a little bit of background. Yeah. We met at a newspaper called New Times Los Angeles. I yeah. think we both got there around the same time. I got there in 99. Yeah, 99, about fall of 99. They did the test earlier in the year. and uh, They had yeah. uh, they had started that uh, publication up in 96 from some previous publications. Yeah. And uh, you and I got there about 99. Real feisty, fun paper, great people. Uh, had some great experiences, and you were kind enough to take me along to some screenings, which was really thrilling for me. Uh, so we got to know each other, and we've known each other for a long time. And one of the things that was going on there, I had already started writing about Scientology a few years before I got there. And then for me, it was really thrilling to be in Los Angeles, where I'm from, writing about Scientology, because, I mean, that's one of the best places to do that. And, you know, you you were seeing that going on. You you could see uh, what was happening with Scientology and Hollywood and that kind of thing. So you're not somebody that's not new to the subject. You've been around a long time. But then I remember in 2000, Battlefield Earth came out. <laughs> and now I, for me, it was a big deal because I knew that Travolta and uh, David Miscavige really thought of it. They were not only taking an L. Ron Hubbard novel and making a movie out of it, they really saw it as a massive tool for recruiting people into Scientology. I knew that. Well, and they were so, right about someone being a massive tool, but... Uh... <laughs> well, I, I so I went opening day. I don't know if you helped me get in there for whatever, but I went opening day. No, I went to a press screening in advance. I don't remember if I brought anyone or not. But I don't think I yes, went with you. Yes, they did. They did actually press screen it um, two days before. But. Wow. So anyway, for me, I was looking for, you know, things that were connected to Dianetics and Scientology. And I saw some things I thought it was really interesting. But you just went to see it as, is this an enjoyable movie? And I think you shocked a lot of people because you were one of a very small number of critics that actually enjoyed that film. Yeah, well, one of the things, um, our arts editor, Suzanne Mantel at the time, had a rule that if you were reviewing a movie based on a book, you had to read the book. So I read all 1,100 pages of that damn book. No way. It, it is a slog. It is like, how did this guy become an important enough writer that, anyone would follow him i mean you know if heinlein started a religion i i would believe that you know if ray bradbury started a religion okay the guy who wrote battlefield earth though i don't get it it's a slog and then the last fourth of it is completely nuts i know there are rumors that someone else finished it for him but uh 
when he like a band when the he closes he basically ends the primary storyline and then starts a completely new one and oh, then really? the very and then the very last chapter is sort of like here's the secret the cyclos were actually psychologists all along and it's like okay i you know you know they have the psychiatry museum of death or whatever it's called i don't even know if that's still around but uh oh yeah so I went in having the book as my reference and the movie is the movie added a lot of stuff for one thing, which, you know, normally someone adapting their church's holy writ would be very, very literal. This was not at all. Mm. They add characters. They did a lot of stuff. And Travolta, for some reason, decided to play the role like Pee Wee Herman, which was an insane choice. And it's, you know, imagine... You know, James Cameron can make Avatar now with nine foot aliens. They didn't have the technology to do that back then. So to make Travolta nine feet, they give him platform boots and a cone head so that he's a nine foot alien. But also, but also they were, they were, they were doing forced perspective, right? In other, to make him look bigger than the other human beings. A little bit. I don't think they did as much of that as Lord of the Rings ended up doing. I think it was just mostly the platforms and the cone heads. And there's one scene where, you know, so there's a voiceover that says, you know, two cyclos moving very fast approaching us. And you see these two guys struggling to even walk in these platform <laughs> boots. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that the theatrical cut isn't available anymore. Like Travolta, once he read the reviews, re-edited the thing, added a lot more of Barry Pepper, took out his most ridiculous parts. Well, what I, re- so- yeah, I remember you and I talking about that because yeah. I think one of the things you and I did enjoy the most from the movie we saw in the theater was how over the top and campy John Travolta. Yeah. See, he plays this. Uh, the Cyclo is this. Cyclo is the name of this uh, race, which is clearly a take on psychologists. Yeah. And he's got this like snake-like tongue, and <laughs> oh, and God, and that, yeah, and there are these scenes in the bar where he's just over the top, campy, bizarro. And I noticed that at you had said some things, some other people said some things, and then by the time it came out on video, those scenes were gone. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. I don't think Battlefield Earth is the sort of movie that's going to get this deluxe 4K treatment from Arrow Video or Vinegar Syndrome because, you know, Bridge Publications, I assume, is going to want full possession of it. And, you know, maybe maybe they'll do something for the faithful that want the original cut, or maybe the faithful don't want the original cut. I'm not sure, but it's not something where I think we're likely to see the theatrical original again, which is, you know, I would have to say after the fact, I bought the DVD kind of excited about it. Then I was like, this is a bit of a dud compared to what I remember. So, you know, my review stands for the theatrical version only I'll say. Okay. Which no one can see, unfortunately. But, but then, you know, I got, I got a wrap later after earth, the Will Smith movie with M night Shyamalan, for some reason, people sort of, decided to dub that a Scientology allegory just because I guess Will Smith had dabbled in Scientology a little bit. Right. And I liked that one too. There was a lot of world building to it. And Gary Whitta, who did, you know, Star Wars Rogue One, wrote the screenplay. And uh, I got a rap from one of my colleagues who was, I think, you know, looking for clickbait. He said, oh, here's the one critic who liked Battlefield Earth and After Earth. And he was (laughs) sort of trying to imply, I think, that I had a Scientology bias, which is like, no, I don't see it, and I don't think that rap is fair for After Earth at all. But you know, people are entitled to dislike it for whatever reasons they dislike it. I I remember being asked about that, and I had to say I can't remember now exactly what were the elements in After Earth people were looking at 
But you're right. I mean, Will Smith is one of those people that um, so many people are convinced he's still a Scientologist. And I try to explain to them that he was definitely out by 2015. And then he and Jada had Leah Remini on their H on their uh, Facebook show, which there's no better proof that you no longer have any relationship with the church yeah. Scientology than inviting Leah Remini on your show. Exactly. With- no. I'll tell you, the element that people thought is that there's a whole thing. The, the It's about these aliens who can smell fear. Mm-hmm. And so you have to mentally convince yourself to have the opposite of fear and not be afraid so they won't smell it. That's the element that I think people thought was Scientology based. And that doesn't seem to map, you know, anything that I know about it. But, you know, maybe you know about it a bit more. It's more like the X-Files parody that they, or the millennium parody that they did of Scientology which was called Selfosophy you know I don't know if you've seen that whole episode no, no. it's it's like a parody of both they have this character called Onan Gupta who's a parody of both Deepak Chopra and L. Ron Hubbard <laughs> and he has a philosophy called Selfosophy and his whole thing is once you think a negative thought force yourself to think the opposite and at wow. the end of it at the end of it one of the criminals who's part of this faith is about to jump across a roof and the good guy says don't do it you can't make it and he's like i can if i believe i can and then he tries to jump and fails <laughs> you know so there I are think s- that, that was more like i think after earth than there are there are so many parodies of scientology now i can't keep track of them all practically every series has a joke about scientology and some of them are just throwaways but some of them are uh you know the kaminsky method for example and uh uh, let's just uh, bow our heads in Alan Arkin's uh, direction for a moment. Indeed. Fantastic actor. Uh, yeah. The Kaminsky method had an elaborate Scientology uh, plot line and the language was perfect, which you don't often see. And then I found out from Jeff Levin that uh, the um, creator of that series uh, helped me, Luke. Oh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not as good with TV. I'm <laughs> There's so many movies. I don't have time for TV, except for the ones that are sort of semi-streaming <sighs> premieres. So oh, it'll come to me in a second. And he was a Scientologist. We found out, and that's why the the language of it was so perfect. It'll come to me. He's very famous. And someone terrible. in the comments is going to roast us for that. Oh, I know you old yeah. farts can't remember anything. So anyway, um, so anyway. When Top Gun came up last year, you said that you were going to get to go to a screening, but, you know, would I be interested in a review? And I said, sure. And I I had no idea if you were going to like it or not, but I, you know, I, I love your reviews. I knew that you would have fun with it either way. And then you named uh, Tom Cruise's character Narcissist Navy Jesus. Yeah, and it was a huge, huge hit. Uh, what what do you have any other thoughts about that film a year later? I I can't believe people loved it as much as they did and gave it a pass as much as they did. It was I found it just insufferable. Um, you know, especially even comparing it to Mission Impossible, which I'm not the hugest fan of that series, but in that he actually plays vulnerable sometimes. In Top Gun, he's playing the perfect person. He's 60 years old and still the best fighter pilot in the world, which is almost physically impossible. Uh, obviously, he 
supposedly flew an actual jet in it, but presumably on a choreographed path and not actually doing surprise evasions or anything like that. Um, the sex scene in it is ridiculous. Uh, it's almost fully clothed and edited to shit. I don't know if you've even seen this movie, but don't. Um, and, you know, most of you, I've never seen the original Top Gun quite all the way through. It's always been in bits and pieces and cultural osmosis because it's such a thing. But when you have, you know, I know the original sex scenes, like, you know, you've got these silhouettes and the billowing curtains and take my breath away. And then this one, you've sort of got some awkward cuts and then they're kind of wearing clothes again and they're in bed side by side and just talking. Uh, a friend of mine, actually, who's in a position to know, but I, I haven't been able to verify this. He said that Cruz recently kind of focus tested and found that fans don't want him to do sex scenes, which is sort of bizarre, given that, you know, I know so many women my age who are super enamored of him, were super enamored of him when we were, you know, in high school and before. And, you know, I'm I think there's a, there's sort of a general sexlessness in movies recently that's been no, been noted and commented upon, and uh, maybe that's it. Maybe people just don't like to see sex scenes at all from the people they think are hot. But mm. it's weird to me, given you know previous movies that he did, like Cocktail, or you know even the first Top Gun where he's such a sex symbol, and or you know Jerry Maguire, it's a love story, you know. I don't recall there's a lot of sex in it but it's all about you know romance right um you know i just i'm amazed that top gun maverick was the hit that it was i i don't quite get it i understand people you know really believe in tom cruise as a stunt man and they think that it's really cool that he does his own stunts as i said in my most recent review on your site uh it doesn't matter if i believe in the moment what it is you know there's the you know the ryan gosling movie first man where he's neil armstrong you know the scene where he's breaking the sound barrier is as believable on screen as tom cruise's scene in maverick and maybe tom cruise was in a real jet i don't know which scenes it was but i know ryan gosling was in a simulator in front of an imax screen but i believed it just as much when i was watching it i assume in the back of my mind because it's a movie that there are safety constraints built in because god i hope so you know, I don't want, nobody wants another Vic Morrow Twilight Zone incident. Mm -hmm. It's sort of surprising John Landis has never been canceled over that. But uh, yeah, I, and I also, another thing is, you know, Chris Pratt, who it hasn't, hasn't been really affected as a movie star, but online on social media, Chris Pratt is deemed the worst Chris because he goes to a Christian church, a fairly middle of the road Christian church, as far as I can tell. And these same people think Tom Cruise is the savior of movies, and they don't look at the fact that the founder of his church is at least as homophobic as anything in Chris Pratt's church. Interesting. Well, let's let's go there then. Let's talk about this a little bit about an artist and his art. Yeah. Uh, I hear I hear from a lot of readers. Of course, you know I have a particular audience that's interested in Scientology news. And I hear from a lot of folks that say, oh, I, I can't watch a Tom Cruise movie. I just can't. I can't go there. I, I can't materially benefit the Church of Scientology because he's probably helping them out. Uh, but clearly, a lot of people do want to see Tom Cruise in the movies because he sells a lot of tickets, especially overseas. And what about that concept that, uh, you know, I'm there to see a great movie I'm not that interested in the private lives of the people making it. 
that must be just a, a con, especially in these days. That must just be a, uh, what what's the current argument on that in the public sphere, Luke? Well, um, it's easier for me as a critic to make to separate those things because I'm not paying for them. You know, I'm getting paid to assess them. So I always say, you know, I can't be, I can't you know be offended for you or you know, make that decision for you. I, I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't be offended or you can't be, you are what you are. And um, general and generally, yes, in the public sphere, it is about, you know, boycotting bad people. I mean, you know, Roman Polanski, we all know the situation that happened there. You know, long ago there was a, you know, he drugged and raped an underage girl. Uh, but it's taken like 40, 50 years for American distributors to say, we're not going to do that. It's taken the current climate because he was still making movies. They were still getting distributed. He still won the Oscar for The Pianist. Woody Allen uh, is not even convicted and no one will touch his movies now, even though they were coming out one a year. And I've often said on Facebook, there are two issues I don't discuss on Facebook ever. One is Israel-Palestine and one is Woody Allen. Uh, it's that intense because everyone on that argument is absolutely sure of their position and will not be swayed. So I don't, I try not to delve into that one, but we are very much in a climate of if somebody says something awful or if they believe something awful, don't give them your money, which is a different argument than separating art from artists. You know, it's easier, it's easier to say, you know, don't give someone your money you don't approve of if they're alive, you know, nobody's saying don't buy Alice in Wonderland because Lewis Carroll may have been a pedophile, you know, or Leonardo da Vinci, probably one of the greatest creative minds of our time. He might've been a pedophile also, but nothing you do is going to support them now. And a re you know, I have sort of a real devil's advocate argument on this. And supposedly you're not supposed to even make devil's advocate arguments because they're toxic. But I sort of think if, if we agree that the death penalty is bad, which let's just assume we do, because I do, um, then you assume that anyone who is not a ward of the state has the right to work for a living. I mean, that's the corollary. They have to be able to, otherwise you kill them. So if all they're able to do is art, they kind of got to make art, and then it's up to the marketplace to decide whether it wants that art or not. So, and, you know, sometimes it's interesting, sometimes it isn't. But, you know, it's tough. I, uh, I've thrown out all my Marilyn Manson T-shirts since the stuff came out about him. I will probably still listen to his CDs that I have. I'm not inclined to buy anything else of his, um, you know, things like that. There's, there's a lot of music from the 90s that I can't play in front of anybody anymore. Um, because in the 90s, there was sort of a whole mindset that you could kind of say anything everything was fair game we were all kind of cool and equal and you know i realize in hindsight that kind of comes from a place of privilege that you know trans people weren't feeling that their voices were equal for example back then so you know it was my privilege that i thought in my group we could you know listen to anything say anything and now everyone's a bit more diligent um you know i it's a tough one i I do try in reviewing not to necessarily bring up an artist's personal life unless you have someone like Victor Salva who was arrested for, you know, making a teenage actor give him a blowjob and I think he filmed it and he went to prison for it. And every movie he makes, he kind of reminds you of that. 
Mm. It's as if, you know, if every movie Roman Polanski made was about banging an underage girl, it would be like that. That's what Victor Salva, Victor Salva has that pervy male gaze mm. in his movies that you can't escape. So if they sort of rub it in their face, then that's interesting. Then it becomes, you know, then it becomes different. Like, you know, I know James Stewart was an arch right wing conservative. I don't think of that when I'm watching Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or, you know, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance doesn't really come into it. And Ronald Reagan in early movies, I think is hilarious, but I think he was an awful politician who did a lot of damage. Yeah, I mean, it's those are interesting fault lines you're describing. I think with Cruz, I understand people who say they, they don't want to see his films because of his association with Scientology. I'm more interested in him at least being asked some questions. Um you know, I understand that he's got a, a a talent for movies. He's he's part of a industry. You know, you know him and Macquarie and all, but dozens and dozens of other people are are a formidable team making in movies, making more and more movies. Um, but I think that that it's not out of the realm of you know it's not unfair to ask him. For example, <clears throat> David Miscavige is was his best man in two of his weddings. They are obviously very careful. I mean, I'm sorry. They were obviously very close as friends. Why can't Tom Cruise answer a question about what happened to David Miscavige's wife, Shelley? You know. Well, there, uh, was that, there was that whole phase where he was answered. He was freely talking about it and it made him the butt of a bunch of jokes. So I think that's right. That's right. It was a very short period, very yeah, short but... period in 2005. And, uh, and, and the whole thing was he was lecturing Matt Lauer and Matt Lauer in hindsight is now like even a worse person <laughs> self-evidently. So it's like, we don't feel bad for Matt Lauer anymore uh, if we ever did. Right. Uh, but there, I mean, there's always restrictions that come with interviewing these big movie stars. And if they make the money and have the clout to do it, they will always have them. If he starts to take a slump and nobody goes to his movies anymore, then there have, probably you, be less have you run into that? Not necessarily with Cruz, but have you run into that where you wanted to interview somebody and you've been told that there are certain parameters in certain areas you can't go into? Uh, usually, yes. I mean, it's nothing. It's not usually anything like that, but it'll be, you know, something as simple as the second 300 movie that Zack Snyder didn't direct, but he produced. Zack Snyder was available for interviews and they basically said, don't ask him about Justice League. Hmm. They didn't say Justice League specifically. They said, he's here to talk about this project. Please don't talk about any other projects to him. And yeah. I had an I had an instance where I was, it's not quite the same, but I was interviewing Rutger Hauer over the phone and he got so mad. He's like, he got so mad at me. Like, I think he hung up, either he hung up on me or his publicist cut off the connection. And then I called and tried to get it back and I sort of apologized to him. Because I was asking him about why he was attracted to violent material, and he seemed confused by the question, like why anyone would ask him that. Hmm. And I, I said, you know, well, I took my girlfriend to Hobo with a shotgun, and she got mad at me for taking her to it because it was so extreme. And he goes, well, fuck her. I don't make movies for her. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, at the time, I was working for a publication that was so positive that anything like that that came up in an interview i couldn't run i had mm -hmm. to edit it so that it made the talent look good always so i couldn't use that part but then you know i got back on i apologized to him he's like don't go hit me with that girlfriend shit 
Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. So, I mean, it's small things like that. I mean, and for the sort of publications that I work for, nobody's looking for a hard-hitting interview about someone's faith generally. Um, so it's not, you know, that's not the sort of thing that really comes up unless we agree in advance that it was. Like I did an interview with Travis Knight for Forbes and we agreed, you know, this is Forbes. We want a really long form interview and we want you to be able to talk about, you know, the fact that you're the son of Phil Knight and how your business savvy compares to, you know, the head of Nike. And, you know, we sort of agreed in advance that that was going to be part of it. But then I did a piece on a Leica movie for another company, for another company I wrote for. And they said, please take out the bit about his father. Huh. You know, because Kubo and the Two Strings is very much a movie about a character with daddy issues. And it's very personal to Travis Knight. And so I made an analogy and they said, please take that out. Huh. Interesting. I don't, I don't remember if that was Leica that asked or if it was the editorial above me, but either one of them did. I don't want to place a hard blame when I don't call exactly. Sure. Uh, it was definitely not to be part of that story. Right. Whereas for the Forbes story, it absolutely was. Right. Okay. Well, uh, I, that's why I'm glad you're writing for the underground bunker because you can write whatever you are thinking. And uh, yeah. So tell us a little bit about this uh, Mission Impossible and your thoughts about that. The new it's uh, it's the seventh. It's the first part of the seventh one. Yes, um, and the idea originally was this would be the grand finale, but uh, they've already walking that back. Uh, uh, part of the reason is because Tom Cruise hasn't made a lot of money in anything but Mission Impossible movies, and the brilliance of Top Gun Maverick is they sort of acted like it was a semi spin-off because he was doing the real stuff in the plane. So it kind of had the mission impossible rub to it, but it does show you how much better Christopher McQuarrie is a, as a director than Joseph Kaczynski. And weirdly, I love Kaczynski and Cruz's previous movie together, Oblivion. I thought that was wonderful. It didn't do well at all. Um, this one it's, you know, McQuarrie says, Oh, it was too much story to put in one movie, which is utter nonsense this is action sequences and in the middle a lot of characters talk and get out some exposition and the funniest thing that i noticed is which is in the review is that there's a part where he's recruiting Haley atwell into the imf and it's a total cult initiation he's basically saying you can either join us now or you can try to go back to your regular life but you'll be killed immediately and it reminds me <laughs> It reminds me of the time a couple of friends of mine back in their 20s, they were all, you know, cocky. And they're like, let's take a tour of the Scientology building just for fun. And they did. And they they came back talking about a video that they saw where they're like, which I'm sure you've written about and know about, where they said, you could try Scientology or you could blow your brains out. <laughs> they kept quoting that. That's their quote. I haven't seen it. so It's called the orientation film. And then there's, yeah, there, you can find the line on. Uh, the Larry Anderson was the narrator on that. And, you know, it, it's, it's almost, it's almost exactly like you just said, it's crazy. But uh, they don't quite say that they don't imply in mission impossible that Haley Atwell is going to kill herself, but that if she goes back to her normal life, someone is going to do it. So she should, you know, join the impossible mission force. And at which point she's still going to have to take orders for the rest of her life. So it's a freedom, but not freedom, which is kind of interesting. And then there's a part where the AI basically says it's going to set off a nuclear bomb unless Simon Pegg passes a personality test, which, you know, anyone who knows anything about 
even what Scientology says about itself is that they offer free personality tests. So right, right. It also has like Riddler style riddles from Batman, but it intersperses them with personal questions that he has to be fully honest about or the AI will know if he's lying. So, you know, that kind of struck me as well. But uh, I will say that, you know, the the third act of this movie is wonderfully done. It's It's tension, it's piles, you know, thing upon thing until it's almost ridiculous, almost cartoony and pulls back from being completely cartoony. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that Tom Cruise is actually able to act like he doesn't want to do the big stunts when you know that that's exactly why he made this movie is so he could do them. Uh, he's believable in that moment. It's, it's the funniest. It's the only real moments of humor in the movie or when he sort of realizes what the thing is he has to do. And he's like, oh, hell no. Why'd you make me do this? And I, as, you know, as a critic, I know, well, Tom Cruise wanted to do that and that's why. But as a viewer in the story, I'm like, that's hilarious that they keep making him do this ridiculous stuff and he has to keep agreeing. So that he's otherwise, Ethan Hunt is otherwise a pretty humorless and increasingly saint-like, Christ-like character. So, Hmm. you know again you know supposedly it's focus tested that people don't want to see him in sex scenes but he surrounds himself with beautiful leading ladies and then does nothing with them which is interesting hmm well um he's let's talk about his acting ability for a minute i mean i i remember he was very good in magnolia he he was very good as kind of a cult leader in magnolia um, didn't, didn't you write about one of those self-help gurus at one point that he was basing that on Ross something or other uh, art, artist yes I wrote about it's right I had back in uh, 99 or 2000 <laughs> at New Times LA I wrote about two of these pickup artist guys that were suing each other that's what made it especially yeah. fun and uh, Jeff was it Jeffrey Ross was the name I'm forgetting that no Jeff Ross name of a comedian I'm forgetting. Yeah, no, no I, th- I think Ross is his first name, but I forget his surname. Maybe it was Ross Jeffries. And then the other guy's name was Steele. And they, what was fun about it was they had completely different approaches to picking up women and they hated each other's guts and they were suing each other. And definitely uh, Cruz's character was somewhat like one of these two guys, definitely. But um I mean, you know, he is a good actor. I don't know about yeah. his choice of material. And and you have written before about how there was a period when he really seemed to be trying to work with great directors and maybe stretch himself a little bit. But now it's just it's just sort of a action formula. Even Mission Impossible began as that. Like every movie was supposed to be completely different and in the style of the director that was doing it. Like Brian De Palma is the first one. John Woo is the second one, and it is the most John Woo movie that ever John Wooed, frankly. J.J. Um, Abrams, who was starting out, was did part three, and I think that's because Tom Cruise liked Alias a lot. Mm. And then Ghost Protocol, which I think is actually the best of them. It's the most, it's the closest James Bond ripoff in terms of everything I like about James Bond. And that was Brad Bird, who's mostly done animation, The Incredibles, The Iron Giant. Starting with five, though, it was all Macquarie. I think Macquarie, who's worked with him before on Jack Reacher and worked on scripts with him. He just, he knows how to write in a way Cruz likes and that really clicks for him. And Cruz at this point, I think works with people he can kind of dominate or at least will make him think that he's dominant. I think Macquarie, you know, is good at that. 
Whereas Alex Kurtzman on The Mummy, oh my God, if you watch the Blu-ray extras on that, where they're both interviewed at the same time, it's so clear Kurtzman is like a hostage and he's sort of <laughs> side-eyeing, looking at Cruz, am I allowed to say this kind of thing? And Cruz Ooh. is sort of dominating the conversation. And The Mummy is really, really pretty bad, so... And, and uh, I remember he, that he needs directors to challenge him. You know, he needs a Stanley Kubrick who's going to make him do 37 takes. So he breaks down out of his shtick. And he's when directors subvert his image, that's when it's the best a Magnolia or a Rain Man, where he's the cocky, handsome guy. But deep down, he's an asshole or deep down, he's a failure. And he's very good at doing that. And if somebody would do that with him now, where it's like, He's a guy who's in denial about aging and in denial about how invincible he is and make that the plot. It could be great, but he's not going to do that, I don't think. Also, the Tropic Thunder uh, cameo that was, yeah. uh, you know, so out of character, and that's what made it good, right? Now, was that, you know, I, I saw Louis Theroux's Scientology movie and the guy who did an impersonation of Miscavige was, do you think Tropic Thunder, he was doing Miscavige? I'm, you know. Instead of Harvey? Yeah, it's a good question. I should watch that again and then think about. It. I didn't think about it that way. That is really interesting. I mean, I don't know that Tom Cruise could have a sense of humor about David Miscavige. Um, they're reportedly not only very close, but as John Brousseau said, John Brousseau was David Miscavige's brother-in-law for many years, and he was also worked very closely with Tom Cruise. And his observation was. Tom Cruise worships David Miscavige like a god, not the other way around. So I don't know that he'd be capable of making fun of Miscavige. Interesting. I have, yeah. I don't know. I just see the the guy who Louis Theroux got to play Miscavige in that movie just remind me a little bit of that. In the That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, that guy did a good job. That was really good. So um, there, was, there was supposed to be a spinoff movie about his Tropic Thunder character. It never happened. I, I think probably because it's such a loathsome character, it's tough to build a movie around that. You'd have yeah. To yeah. Um. So, uh, tell me about the chemistry between Cruz and Haley Atwell. Um, I'd say it's decent. I mean, it's hard to say sparks fly because he's so he's playing it so chaste. There are more sparks between Rebecca Ferguson's character, actually, who's a holdover. There's a moment where they're on a gondola and they hold hands and he just kind of squeezes her hand. That's a more human moment than I've seen from him in a long time. And it's, you know, in a previous movie, her character says, run away with me. And Cracked Magazine point out, they've never so much as held hands. And maybe Cruz read that. So he put in this scene that they're holding hands. Oh, but... wow. You know, I think she says something like, I've never been to Venice. And he's sort of like, neither have I. And there's, you know, it's weighted down with more meaning, like, I've never been in this emotional position besides Venice. And then they kind of squeeze their hands. And it's a nice little moment, um, which there aren't many of. Mm. So they've got, and then, you know, immediately she kind of gets fridged so that he can be mad at the villain again. Uh, if you're not familiar with the phrase fridged, it comes from a, a Green Lantern comic where Green Lantern's girlfriend gets chopped up and thrown in a refrigerator as motivation for him to get revenge. It's the concept of a female lead as being disposable as a revenge motive. Uh, 
Um, so she becomes that in this. Haley Atwell is sort of sort of moves into that slot of doing the action scenes with him, and you know they work together pretty well. They're she's playing a pickpocket. He's of course because he's Ethan Hunt, he's even better than the world's greatest pickpocket. So they sort of tee off with sleight of hand, which is interesting to see him learning a smaller skill as opposed to falling off something. And then of course they're together in the final action sequence where train carriages just keep falling off the railroad bridge and they get out of one and they get into another and the other one starts falling and then they get into another one and that starts falling. And so they work pretty good together in that. I will, you know, I won't say there's much romantic sparking between them, but there's, there's a clear trust between the two actors, which is one of the nicer things about the movie. Simon Pegg has said that he just doesn't ask Cruz about the Scientology stuff. Uh, are they, what's their sort of chemistry energy on, on screen? Well, the more I think about it, they're actually separate a lot. They often go off on their own things and they're talking to each other on headsets because Cruz tends to be, Cruz's character, Ethan, tends to be in the thick of the action and Benji played by Simon Pegg and Luther played by Ving Rhames or the rest of his team. And they sort of, in this movie, they're kind of competing as to which one is the better hacker and providing the better backup for him, which you think if they're the greatest team in the world and there's only three of them, that they'd have that <laughs> out by now. Right. Uh, but it adds, you know, it adds a note of conflict. It gives Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg something to do. Uh, so they are separate. And I understand not asking about that. You know, I have friends that I don't, talk about their faith either and you know we want to stay friends uh it's notable how you know old simon Pegg looks he is really he is allowing himself to age uh the way tom cruise isn't and he's starting to look like you know an elder gentleman the sort of person who might be cast for you know doctor who rather than an action movie uh ving rames is ageless but he's you know he's big middle-aged looking dude right and right. it's you sort of think this is the most elite team in the world and there's nobody younger on it. I mean, they sort of recruit a guy at the beginning, but then you never see him again. Well, Luke, I'm also curious about uh, your thoughts on some other Scientology celebrities and their trajectories. Um, I've always argued that, you know, whenever I hear a journalist say there's so many stars in Scientology, I'm like, no, it's a few. Uh, and some of them don't have, you know, much of a career, but there are some younger Scientology celebrities that are doing really well, I think. Now, I want to get your thoughts on that. Tell me about how strong are the careers, for example, of Elizabeth Moss and Michael Pena? Oh, Mike, well, Michael Pena, everybody loves as the MCU, as the Marvel Cinematic Universe guy who explains the plot. Like, he has that shtick down where he, you know, I don't know if you've seen the movies, but he has, he'll there'll be these flashbacks that he narrates and the characters in the flashback will lip sync to his voice and he'll basically do every character's lines. And that's become such a thing. Everyone's like, he should narrate everything. <clears throat> and it's such a thing that the flame and hot Cheetos movie that just came out copies it almost exactly with uh, their actor whose name I forget. He's a new, a newcomer, but very impressive. So yeah, Michael Pena has his own action figure, which isn't a common thing for celebrity Scientologists, whether by coincidence or not. But we've talked about this. There aren't any American-made Tom Cruise action figures at all, which is may surprise people. There are barely any John Travolta ones. He's only made ones that give revenues to charity and his church. Um, so Michael Pena is super hot, I think. Um, 
who else did we say? Elizabeth Moss also. Um, I think it's notable that Elizabeth Moss always plays women who are, nearly always plays women who are abused and terrorized. And it's like, you know, draw your own conclusions there. She's very convincing at it. You know, The Handmaid's Tale, I, I haven't watched, but my impression is it's about a religious cult that takes over the country. Um, that's that's what so many journalists yeah. have, have asked. It's like, how yeah. does she get away with uh, starring in a series about a totalitarian dystopia when she was raised in one? And well, I, you know, I think it's the general perception. I think people think of that sort of like, you know, they think of Tom Cruise like that guy on the History Channel who goes, aliens, you know, Giorgio Tsoukalos or whatever. They think that's it. That it's Whereas, you know, I think... As you've, as we talked about on my podcast many moons ago, it's not about what they believe; it's about what they practice. And I don't. There's that, and there's that. Editors don't ever want to mention it, right? Um, in the same way that they will talk about Chris Pratt's church, that is, you know, somewhat evangelical. I, I think. Um, so that's why. So you know, a lot of people. It's sort of you know a taboo topic, and even you know. I don't get into, you know, what the church supposedly really does versus what they say they do. Just, I'm just going by what they say they do. L. Ron Hubbard's written that homosexuality is a perversion. So that's, that's, that's out right. there. That's I'm, not, right. I'm, not, I'm not libeling the religion by saying that. It's unofficial stuff that they've put out that, you know, they do personality tests. We know this. They offer them. Right. Um, but even editors are even afraid to say the stuff that they themselves say because, Right. I think it puts the target on them. But Elizabeth Moss does seem to be having a very strong career. Michael Pena, too. What about Erica Christensen? Not. Um, the last thing I saw her in was The Case for Christ, which <laughs> was, you know, interesting. And I think you've talked about this. It's interesting to see her in a movie that's outright proselytizing for evangelical Christianity. And I don't know. Maybe you can tell me how compatible the two are. Can you be an evangelical Christian and be a Scientologist? No, you can't. But the one of the interesting things about the celebrities is they get to break rules that other Scientologists have to follow. And basically, the a, a more important rule to Scientology is, is she bringing in money? And if, if she's bringing in a big paycheck doing a movie like that, they're not going to complain about it. So, And it's the same thing with... Laura Prepon, for example, she now says she's out, but you know, she was playing a lesbian character on Orange is the New Black. And so people would always ask me about that. How can Scientology allow her to play a gay character given its homophobic uh, you know, background? And I always say, because she's making money, they just don't they they're not gonna tell a celebrity not to do that. Um, so it's they get they get special rules that celebrities do. What about Travolta? He's a he's a strange one, and you know, I, this is just <clears throat> some secondhand stuff I heard. But I was on the set of a movie called The Woods in Montreal, which was shot at the sound stages where they shoot everything, and a lot of the same crew. And they mentioned they'd worked on Battlefield Earth, and they said that he always showed up late just for the afternoon. He was always with people by his side. He always had to have a hand on each person's shoulder as he walked in every time. And just that he was very, very strange. I mean, I've heard a lot of other anecdotes about how he's people I know have run into him and he's been really nice. Um, I think he's just a strange, strange guy, and it's affected some of his choices. Like that he made that gaudy movie for Movie Pass, which 
made him the butt of a bunch of jokes. But, uh, you know, as as people very close to me have pointed out, he does accept that he's aging and he's doing those ads now where he's completely bald. Um, so he's, you know, he's cashing in on his own nostalgia a bit. You know, the thing I think we see him in most right now is the T-Mobile commercial where he's singing the song from Greece. Uh, Greece nostalgia didn't help that Rise of the Pink Ladies show that just happened, but I think Travolta's bringing out the residual love. I, it wouldn't surprise me if he tried to get, you know, a Grease legacy sequel off the ground where Danny's an old man. Uh, that's sort of the thing that seems to be happening right now. So uh, if he sees, you know, Cruz having luck with it, he sees Harrison Ford having luck with it, uh, that would seem to me to be the next step. Or even like, you know, old Tony Monero, even though staying alive was such a bomb and everyone said it was terrible, it might be, you know, didn't stop Halloween from making legacy sequels. The fact that they had terrible sequels in the past. So I think, that, I think there's still a lot of love for Travolta, but the star system is broken right now. There's no mm. star that there's no star that can go out there and say, you know, I want to make this movie. I, and the studio will say, yeah, you guarantee that it'll make 20 million first weekend. Cause that doesn't happen anymore for whatever reason. Maybe it's cause, you know, some people will say it's all cause of superhero movies and IP, some people say it's because there's so little difference between TV and movies that all these A-listers are on TV and you can see them there. Uh, it's not clear to me how that star system quite got broken, but Travolta by himself is not a guarantee anymore. If Travolta were to say, you know, I'm going to sing and dance again and show a clip of him doing it really well, that might be the thing that would bring him back. And he's had, you know, he's had, he's had at least two comebacks that I can think of in his career. One was Look Who's Talking, which brought him back as a comedy bankable star. And then the other was Pulp Fiction, which brought him back as an action star for a while. I I don't know that he's plausible as an action guy anymore, but he could definitely come back. I think there's a lot of residual love for him still. It's just he doesn't guarantee dollars like he, like anyone used to. to be right. Funny. How about uh, Bonnie Rabisi? God, the last thing I saw him in was both Avatar movies, and it's a tiny, tiny role. So in that sense, he's on a par with Joel David Moore, who, I, you know, to the average moviegoer, they probably don't even know these two are in both Avatar movies. But, you know, I assure you, Joel David Moore and Giovanni Ribisi probably think every day about how they're in the Avatar universe. And my understanding is Ribisi is going to be bigger in the sequels. They even, uh, this is fairly little known, but that Cameron, when he re-released Avatar, added in a new scene. Uh, not even a scene, just a shot. Uh, at the end, at the end of the movie, you know, all the evil humans are being herded to their ships to be go off world, never to be seen again. Uh, there's a new scene where Rabisi's character stops and turns to Jake Sully and goes, "This isn't over." Mm. And it's sort of just that's a bit. It, it's dangerously close to what George Lucas did with Star Wars, where he's going back and retconning his movie a little bit. But it's setting up that Rabisi is going to be back in this world. And an interesting thing about Cameron movies is they don't necessarily provide boosts to their cast. They sometimes do. Uh, Michael Bean, I think, owes every role he ever got to Cameron. And, you know, obviously Sigourney Weaver got a massive boost. Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator. But... You know, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio didn't become an A-lister after the abyss. Um, B-lister, at least. But, 
you know, Joel David Moore, I can't recall seeing in any other movie between the avatars. I'm sure he was. I, you know, I'm not saying that to dismiss him, but I think people even forget Michelle Rodriguez was in it sometimes. Mm. And she's, you know, a huge name, but not because of that. Uh, I'll throw another name out at you. Juliette Lewis. Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten. Is she even still in it? I'd forgotten. Yeah. Uh, and I can't remember the last thing I've seen her in. It's been a long time. Uh, you know, I've heard more, I think, about her doing music than about her doing movies. Right. That's true. That's true. So I, I'm drawing a blank on what she's even done lately. To yeah. Be yeah. And, you know, someone down below will certainly correct me on that. But <laughs> right now, as we record this, I'm drawing a blank. I apologize. Okay. Uh, I guess that's those are the major ones. I mean, Ann Archer, I mean, you know, I'm I'm not sure she's still acting at all. But, uh, uh, you know, it's it's not a long list. And the only the only I pointed out recently, the only two Scientology celebrities who are really putting their name on Scientology fundraising, putting themselves in flyers, are Nancy Cartwright, who's the voice of Bart Simpson, and Judy Norton, who was in the Waltons back in the 70s. And that's about it. You know, know, I'm pretty sure Tom Cruise is still donating millions, but he doesn't, they don't release any public information about that. And Jason Lee's not in it anymore, right? Jason Lee has publicly said he's out. What What about Beck? I mean, Beck, not he's a movie guy, but Beck has publicly said he's out. The people, the three people who have, besides, you know, when Leah Remini obviously was 10 years ago this week, by the way, at the underground bunker, we announced that she'd left Scientology 10 years ago. Um, and she, uh, she came out guns blazing. You know, she came out, uh, talking about, you know, the problems in Scientology. Since then, some celebrities have left in a much quieter way. Uh, Laura Prepon, Beck, and um, uh, Laura Prepon, Beck, and who was the one we were just saying? Oh, Jason Lee, all just gave little quotes in newspapers. I, I think Beck was in an Australian newspaper. Uh, Jason Lee's was in a regional paper in Texas, and Laura Prepon was in People Magazine, and they just said, "I'm not in that anymore," which was shocking. Uh, but they clearly did not intend to come out and criticize Scientology the way that Leah did. Uh, so, and then I haven't heard another word from any of the three of them about about it. And I was going to say, I don't think we've heard much from Paul Haggis lately either. Well, I mean, Haggis was sued and uh, found liable uh, uh, for raping Haley um, Breast and... He got a $10 million uh, judgment against him. She's trying to collect that now. Uh, he had, there were numerous women that, that testified against him in that case. And, uh, you know, you see people like Leah Remini really sticking up for him, saying that she really feels like this is just not, you know, uh, it's it, she believes that Scientology is behind it. I've never found any evidence of that. I've certainly tried to find some. Um that's just a really unfortunate situation for Paul. And, and it's, it's what's kind of strange about it is that he predicted something like that would happen when he was uh, interviewed by Lawrence Wright in the New Yorker, very near the end of the article, he says, you will probably see me in a scandal in a few years. That's how Scientology operates. So they tried to introduce that evidence at the trial, but the jury didn't, uh, didn't uh, buy it. 
Well, I mean, it would also be a great pre-alibi if you wanted to do something like that <laughs> on the other hand. So you've seen too many movies, Lou. <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> so tell people where they can read your stuff. Cause I think, like I said, the underground bunker readers just really, really enjoyed both your reviews of Top Gun Maverick and now the new uh, Mission Impossible film. Where can they see your work more regularly? Well, it's it's all over the place. If you're still on the hell site known as Twitter, the easiest thing is to follow me. Just L-Y-T rules, L-Y-T-R-U-L-E-S is my social handle on most of those sites. Uh, the AV Club, I review for. Superhero Hype is, you know, I review super, superhero sci-fi movies, the big, big sci-fi fantasies. I also review toys there and do toy photo shoots. That's another side of what I do. Uh, the AV Club is sort of like, you know, the non the mainstream movies that are not that and then at a site called synagogues.com which is c-i-n-e-g-o-d-s i review super independent films at a site called filmsgonewild.com i review festival films and those two sites are all like super indie super festival stuff you won't hear about for another couple of years a lot of people don't like reading reviews of stuff they don't know about some people really do but it's it's where you'll see some gems first and see also hear about some things that ought to be buried and never seen again. Give uh, me the, give, can you give me an example of something that you got to see maybe a couple years before other people even heard of it? Um, that you liked? Gosh, I'm trying to think. Well, a long time ago, this isn't this isn't connected to those sites, but you know, I was one of the first people to extol Louis C.K.'s first film, Tomorrow Night, which played for two weekend mornings at the Lemley Sunset Five uh, in L.A. And I said, you you know, you got to go out and see this movie. I know it's at 10 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday. You don't want to do it, but this is the best movie of the year. And uh, nobody did, and it died. And then his second movie was Pootie Tang, which got destroyed by the studio. They chopped it up, took it away from him, and he hates it. Um, but it became kind of a cult hit. I know a lot of people, like our old friend Joe Donnelly, who's like, Thank you for turning me on to Pootie Tang. Uh, and, you know, I even kind of became friends with Louie and then all this horrible stuff about him came out. And now it's like, oh, screw you, Louie. You were fronting. I don't care about you. I don't like you anymore. It's the shame. The guy had talent, but he's relentlessly self-sabotaging. Mm. Um, that's something you get just from knowing him. And I thought at first, you know, oh, it's just, you know, it's just he's insecure or whatever. But there's... It, as it turned out there's something way darker there and i can't really in good conscience tell anyone to go out and see tomorrow night but before louis happened it was evidence that he could do something like the show louis and it was sort of when that came out i was sort of like i told you he could do it and now it's like i just want to wipe that all away so maybe that's not the best example but that is an example of a small one i saw that was sort of indicative of a guy who was going to be huge and uh I'm telling you guys right now, there's a movie that's on Amazon Prime and Voodoo called Backwards Faces. That's a small indie. That's one of my favorites of this year. So I don't know if it's going to be huge. My track record for predicting is sometimes 50-50, but my track record for knowing what I like, uh, I'll stand by it. If it's it's a movie go, it's the it's the movie every amateur filmmaker wants to make because it's set entirely in an apartment. It has two cast members. It has more than two characters, by the way, but two cast members. And it's the writing just makes it compelling. And I wanted it to be longer than it was. But then when the ending came, I was like, that's a perfect ending. Okay. So 
Backwards Faces. Check that out. Who the guy who made that? His name I ought to have at my disposal, but don't. Um, they're that guy's a talent. He's you know, <laughs> and here I am plugging him without naming him, but <laughs> not an easy name to remember. <laughs> so people can look it up. They got the Google. All yes. right. Well, you know, listen, that seems like a lot of stuff you're doing, Luke. I hope you can keep up with it all. Yeah, well, I'm all over the place, but it, it it's never, you know, it, it keeps me busy <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you contributing to the bunker. People loved it. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. And I appreciate it too. I thought to end, you remember I made a video a long time ago that was impersonations of everyone at new times. I thought I should try to do my Tony because <laughs> I doubt anyone else does a Tony Ortega. Oh my God. I was sort of like, Hey, you guys, how's it going? Going good. Oh, that's great. Is that me? Is that me? <laughs> that's you. <laughs> oh, man. And you even had a figure. You even had an uh, action figure uh, to represent me in that film. And yeah. it was... Um, it was Eddie Guerrero, Latino Heat. Latino Heat, yeah. I also want to send a shout out to my friend Amanda, who came upon your work completely independently of me so all right listen Amen. Luke. thank you so much man and uh can't wait for the next time uh i get a chance to get a review from you okay ah i love it i'll keep them coming as long as you keep wanting them so okay thanks luke talk Good to you later one. bye bye now I'm